place around. But when the rain comes to the Negev, when the rain comes, the water courses fill immediately. They fill immediately. They fill quickly. They flood. And you can see where those water courses are, even though there's no water uh, in those riverbeds right now. So the request that you'll hear in Psalm 126 is to restore us fully, O Lord, immediately like a flash flood. So these are the words of Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. This is the word of God for the people of God. Will you say with me, thanks be to God. So I can remember a year and a half ago dropping our oldest daughter off at college. And when we pulled away from the curb and we drove for miles and miles, I cried. (laughs) I cried because I would miss her. That was part of it. But more than that, I cried because all of a sudden I had this recognition of all the mistakes I had made (laughs) right in front of me. I want you to know a year and a half later, I see things a little more clearly. And I want to tell you something that Keith and I did well. Well, mostly it's Keith. (laughs) For both of our daughters, Keith let each of them pick a concert and he took them to that concert with a friend that they chose. So when Claire was 15, she chose this musician named Lord. And so she and her good friend Kate dressed all in black, and they lined their eyes with heavy black eyeliner, right? And Keith selected from his closet of plaid shirts a plaid shirt, and they got in the car, and they drove to Austin together to 6th Street, and they saw this concert by Lord. Alice, on the other hand, when she was 15, chose Taylor Swift. And so Alice and her good friend, who is also named Kate and Keith, drove to the AT&T Center in Dallas. And, um, and in one of my favorite videos ever, Alice and Kate stand and sing to the music as Taylor Swift sings while Keith sits bobbing his head and waving this neon pink armband. (laughs) We're never, ever, ever getting back together, right? Isn't that Taylor Swift? Yeah. Brene Brown would say that Keith gave his daughters an experience of collective joy. Collective joy. Concerts, football games, theater performances, They all cultivate a sense of human connection and belonging. And they are valuable events because they remind us that no no matter how much we dislike somebody on Facebook or even in person, 
that we are connected to one another. Brene Brown says, inextricably connected to each other. A study that was published just this year on what the researchers labeled effervescent assembly, I like that phrase, effervescent assembly, found that when we are part of a large gathering, like a concert or a football game or a theater performance, that it's about more than just distraction. It's about more than distracting ourselves from our ordinary life or distracting ourselves from our troubles. That it is also an opportunity to feel connection, to feel meaning, and to experience joy. You are actually engaging in this practice of effervescent assembly this morning. Worship. Worship is my favorite kind of collective assembly. So pat yourself on the back. You're working out this morning. You're strengthening your true belonging muscle. Brene Brown says that women and men who have a strong sense of belonging engage in the practice of holding hands with strangers. So you don't necessarily have to agree about everything. You don't have to be exactly like-minded to experience this form of joy. Because a stranger, you know, is someone whom you don't necessarily agree with. They're strange to you either because you don't know what they believe, you don't know what they believe politically or socially, or their beliefs are just completely strange to you, completely weird and foreign. That makes them a stranger. So you simply have to be willing to value other people and seek connection with them. And when you're willing to value other people and seek connection with them, then you get this experience, this experience of shared joy or true joy, and your belonging muscle gets stronger. So Psalm 126 that we read this morning is a psalm that is primarily about joy. In, in just eight verses of the psalm, the word joy shows up three times, and the word rejoiced one time but this isn't you know this isn't a social media post this isn't an end zone celebration this isn't a happy dance it's not that kind of joy this is a party this kind of joy that's described in psalm 126 is a group effort it is sung by more than one person you probably heard that as it was read the words we and our and us repeat are repeated they occur throughout this psalm so for people of faith joy is about more than just individual achievement joy is about more than simple happiness joy is a shared experience we experience joy true joy biblical joy when we are together and that's what i want you to hear this morning that joy is not a solitary quest Happiness might be a solitary quest, but joy is not. We do joy together. So, I'm one who is joy-challenged. And about a year and a half ago, I wrote this, or I, I got this book, I bought this book for my Kindle and for my desk, so I bought two different copies of it, that's called The Book of Joy. And there's a picture from it that's back here behind me on my right. Um, It's based on a conversation between those two, between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. From the very beginning of this book 
and throughout this book, the connection with other people is emphasized as a pillar of joy, as an important ingredient of joy. The archbishop begins with these words, Our greatest joy happens when we seek to do good for others. And when he says this, he teaches this South African concept of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a person is a person through other people. Ubuntu. A person is a person through other people. So it says, when I have a small piece of bread, it's for my benefit to share it with you. Because none of us have come into this world on our own. A person is a person through other people. We are all connected. You and I could not walk. We could not speak. We could not think. Except from learning it through other people. So this concept of Ubuntu says that we belong to one another. And in this connection, in this relationship, is where we experience joy. Years ago, when I announced my first pregnancy with some trepidation to David McNitsky, because I'd only worked at the church for six months, his reply to me was, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Nothing has brought me more joy than the experience of having children, and I want that for you. It is part of the experience of life that joy is so often uncovered in relationship, not only with children, but with family members, with friends, uh, with people in, in our congregations. We find joy when we see beyond ourselves. The experience of parenting is an up-close version of that, isn't it? A study on heart disease by a man named Larry Sherwitz showed that people who constantly use personal pronouns when they speak have a greater risk of a heart attack. Self-involvement, this study said, is a better predictor of death than smoking, than high cholesterol, than even high blood pressure. Still another study showed that people who use the pronouns in their speech, we and our more frequently, and us, are less likely to be depressed. So it's this wider perspective that seems to test out as a healthier perspective. And I would say from studying and looking at Psalm 126, I'm going to say that it is even a more realistic perspective. Psalm 126 suggests that we actually see joy more clearly through the eyes of other people. Did you hear this in Psalm 126? It says, The Lord has, the other nations look at Israel and say, The Lord has done great things for them. And the response is, The Lord has done great things for us. And we rejoiced. Often, my joy is magnified. When other people see it and they point it out to me, when they point it out to me and they say, look at that, look at what's right under your nose, look what God has done for you, that joy that I couldn't see very clearly is magnified. I see it more clearly when it's pointed out to me. I have this friend, H.P. Wright, who's an usher in the sanctuary. An H.P. Wright, without fail, will always ask me how my children are doing. 
or what my children are up to. And the result is that I leave conversations with HP, thankful for him, of course. But even more than that, I leave conversations with him, thankful for what my children are doing, no matter what it is they're up to. (laughs) Well, there is a surprise about joy that's found in this psalm, I think. And the surprise about joy that's found in Psalm 126 is that the pilgrimage to joy that we are on together often goes by way of sorrow. Joy has a partner, and the partner, strangely enough, the psalm says, is our tears. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. It's as if tears and joy are yoked together like planting and harvesting, the psalm says. I can remember years ago experiencing a family funeral for the first time in my own family as a very young adult. And my experience of that day was that it was very long. We had a graveside in the morning, and then we had a church service, and there was a lunch at the church and a reception at my grandparents' house. And then after that, we returned to the cemetery to see that the casket was buried well beneath the earth. It was just a day of many, many tears. But that night, that night my extended family gathered informally to eat. It was just time to eat again. (laughs) And so we gathered at a local restaurant And I think we cleared that place out because we were so loud. We were laughing so much. (laughs) And what I learned in that experience was that tears and joy, tears and laughter, are often, they often come together. I see it as a pastor. I witness similar scenes in other families, often reflecting with a family on the deceased leads to both tears and laughter. In fact, I can't recall a time when I've only seen tears in a meeting with a family to plan a funeral. It is as if tears automatically lead to laughter. They're both deep places, right? Plant tears, harvest laughter. Plant tears, harvest laughter. Harvest laughter, and that's what Psalm 26 claims to know. That when we plant sorrow, we harvest joy. Just recently, Sheryl Sandberg, who is the COO of Facebook, has started to speak and write publicly about the sudden death of her husband uh, when her children were in second and fourth grades. She says that the day of the funeral, they arrived at the cemetery, and her children got out of the car, and they immediately fell to the ground unable to take another step. Her response was to lie down on the ground with them, holding them while they cried. And then their cousins came, and they lied down on the ground too, and aunts and uncles, family, both natural and chosen, came, and they all piled up together in one great big giant heap. Sandberg started to sing the first song that came to mind. It was a song from her childhood 
that's titled Ose Shalom. It's a prayer for peace. And a rabbi later told her that it is the last line of the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for mourning. In her commencement speech at UC Berkeley, Sandberg talked about the, her experience of grief. And she said, I have this huge reservoir of sadness that is near me. It's right where I can touch it. But at the same time, I'm also more grateful than I have ever been. My focus every day is on moments of joy that happen during that day. It is ironic that losing my husband helped me to find a deeper sense of gratitude. Desmond Tutu talks about knowing Nelson Mandela most of Mandela's life. And he says about Mandela's 27 years in prison that they had an interesting effect on him. He said that Mandela went to jail, head of the armed wing of the African National Congress, and he said it, I would describe him as bloodthirsty when he went to jail. But he emerged, Nelson Mandela emerged as compassionate and magnanimous and willing to walk in the shoes of another person. In both instances, and I believe in many others, suffering has the capacity to expand and grow the soul. It opens us up to compassion and gratitude, and I believe ultimately to a greater joy. But the truth of the matter is it's just simply a difficult path. It is easier said than done. Sorrow well done in relationship is a very vulnerable stance. It's an open stance. The truth is that both planting and sorrow are vulnerable stances. The psalm says those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The planter sows the seeds. The planter sows the seeds not knowing what to expect, having very little control over the circumstances that surround the seed and the soil, very little control over the wind and the rain and the sun. There could be too much. There could be not enough. When theologian Alexander Shia, who's coming in January, did you hear that? Yeah. When he writes about the path through the Gospels, and he writes about the path that happens from Mark to John's Gospel, and that is a path that goes from suffering to joy, he says this, We pray that our yearning outstretched hand would be met with a firm grip to lead us ashore. And yet that's not what we get. Instead, what we get is so much more. We get on the path and embrace. He goes on to say that there are three things that will cause us to miss that embrace, that will cause us to miss the embrace of joy. And those three things are sentimentality, cynicism, and the assertion of power over another person. And so all three of those stances, they don't look like this. They look like this. They look like this. They look like sentimentality. I want what I used to have. They look like cynicism. There's nothing you can do. 
They look like the assertion of power over another. I can control this, and I can control you. But to receive joy, you can't have the stance. You must have this stance. You have to extend your hand and open up to receive the embrace of joy. You have to be vulnerable. The stance of grief that ultimately leads to joy is open. It just simply says, I'm here and I'm vulnerable. One evening this week, I walked past our nativity set. And I noticed the manger was empty. That baby Jesus was missing. And so I yelled back towards the kids' bedrooms, Where's baby Jesus? What did you clowns do with baby Jesus? (laughs) And from the hallway came the words, He hasn't been born yet. He's on the roof of the stable. (laughs) All right, I said, you have a valid point. There was baby Jesus right under my nose on the roof of the stable. I picked him up and I got a good look. Really? Is there a better picture of the vulnerability that is needed than the Christian nativity, than baby Jesus? God born as a human baby, resting in a feeding trough to parents who are uncertain about one another and uncertain about the future. If you're like me, you've seen the nativity so many times you might not actually see it. But I want to encourage you this week to look at it closely because it is a stance that's modeled for you and for me that ultimately leads to a full sense of joy. The stance is I'm here and I'm vulnerable. I'm here and I'm vulnerable. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. We seek joy, the kind that you offer, that is more than happiness, it's more than success. And so we come before you and one another with outstretched hands, Lord. Would you take suffering from our grip? Because we want to receive your embrace. May your goodness flood our lives as we seek your ways together. Fill our very souls and our mouths with shouts of joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.